Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. The first half of 2021 has been characterized by a very strong recovery from the pandemic recession, with a powerful pickup in GDP growth and equity markets reaching new all-time highs. As we head into the second half of the year, the US is expected to continue on its path to full recovery. But several challenges remain. More contagious variants of the coronavirus have emerged. Taxes are likely to increase. And the Fed is mulling tapering its massive bond purchases. Meanwhile, valuations across equity and fixed income markets are looking stretched. In August, in a rare showcase of bipartisanship, the Senate passed a major infrastructure bill, potentially providing infrastructure projects with the largest infusion of federal cash in more than a decade. More than half of the package is earmarked for crucial spending on roads, bridges, and improved internet access, but it hasn't been signed into law just yet. Soon after, the Senate began the process of a far more ambitious $3.5 trillion budget plan that will be much harder to pass and is expected to be voted upon along party lines. Together, these bills could provide significant short-term fiscal stimulus. But questions remain as to how all of this will be paid for and whether the anticipated congressional standoff will result in the government shutdown or debt default. To discuss Washington dynamics and their implications for the economy and investments, I'm very glad to be joined by my colleague Mira Pandit, Global Market Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So Mira, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. So to start with, can you take us through these proposals? What is in each of these bills? So you can think of the infrastructure bill a little bit like the American Jobs Plan that was proposed earlier this year. It's more of the physical infrastructure. And then the reconciliation proposal you can think of a little bit more like the American Families Plan, so that human infrastructure aspect. Now, the infrastructure proposal, which I believe is called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, has a lot of the the things you'd expect in terms of classic infrastructure. Roads, bridges, grid, rail, um, airports, water infrastructure, transportation safety, some of the more kind of 21st century initiatives too, like universal broadband. So again, classic physical infrastructure. Um, On the other hand, uh, with the reconciliation, that's going to be more of the funding for the human infrastructure initiatives. And, And there we don't have as many details yet, but it's sort of the broad categories of healthcare, tax credits, uh, jobs and and families, housing and climate. And some of the specifics we've heard so far are things like universal pre-K, first two years of community college for free, extending those child care tax credits, uh, family leave, lower prescription drug costs, immigration. So really a broad range of social funding. So obviously there's a lot of politics involved in this uh, as well as just legislation. What are the next steps to get these two bills through Congress and onto the president's desk? It's going to be a very delicate dance because essentially with the infrastructure bill that was approved through the Senate. um, But in order for it to go to the House, a lot of the progressive Democrats in, in the House have said, look, we're not going to vote on the infrastructure bill until a reconciliation bill passes in the Senate. 
And this is not a small group of people. You know, the Progressive Caucus in the House is about 100 people. So this is a pretty significant block. But on the reconciliation side, although the Senate passed a $3.5 trillion budget plan, this is just a framework. It's just a blueprint. We don't even have the legislative text yet. So we're probably going to get that perhaps sometime in September. But the challenge is really getting all 50 Democratic senators to agree. I mean, you have moderates like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, um, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who say, ah, we're not so sure about those tax increases and, and the price tag is just too high. I think they'd be comfortable with something closer to about $2 trillion. So then you're in this little bit of a chicken and an egg situation. The House won't pass the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes reconciliation. The Senate wants to push through the infrastructure bill, um, but we don't necessarily have Democratic consensus on what's in that. And it's really going to be this all or nothing situation. So we're probably going to see some pretty heavy debate throughout the fall. I'd be surprised to see anything before October, but even October could be a, a bit ambitious. So um, let's, let's, let's back away just for a second here from what's going on with, with the two bills uh, you know, in, in real time and think, think back in terms of President Biden's green energy uh, ambitions do these bills actually achieve those? To some extent, yes. It's really going to depend, again, on what, how much actually passes through. Um, in the infrastructure bill, it does have improvements for power infrastructure. I don't know that as much of that is going to go for greening the grid as maybe originally proposed. There is some money for electric vehicle charging stations and electrical you know, ferries and buses. But again, it's really a fraction of the amount of that was originally proposed. And you don't see things like clean energy tax credits or, or subsidies for buying electric vehicles themselves. What you do see that remained intact actually to the dollar is that $47 billion in more resilient infrastructure. So that's going to help with some of the extreme climate outcomes that we do expect. Um, but on the reconciliation side, you know, here's the wild card because there's some estimates that it could be about $560 billion for clean energy investments. And, and that's pretty sizable, not too far off of the original plans. Um, and it includes a couple of other different provisions as well. Things like a carbon border tax that would seek to impose um, a tax on imports from other countries who maybe don't have as burdensome regulatory costs from an environmental perspective. The goal is to make sure that American firms are still competitive. Um, if that were to happen, that could start in, in 2024 and, and cover about 12 percent of, of imports. Um, there also could be provisions for energy tax incentives, uh, potentially a clean energy standard to push the U.S. to receive about 60 percent, sorry, 80 percent of its electricity from clean sources. So in theory, it could accomplish quite a bit. Again, it's really going to be the devils in the details in terms of what goes through. But what I would say is that the social ambitions um, are pretty broad ranging. So if we think about it more broadly from a, a sustainability perspective, um, there's a lot of, you know, initiatives for families, affordable housing, um, again, children and jobs that could actually accomplish some of those social goals, even more so than than the climate goals, potentially. And look, if the benchmark is the original proposals of the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, then it's going to fall short of that. But by any other measure, it's a really monumental investment in, in both climate and some of these social initiatives. But of course, it, it, it does, as you say, have to get those 50 votes in the Senate. So 
you know, personally, I can see it being a little easier to get through things like an extension of the child tax credit, which will be pretty popular as people get these checks every month. I can see it'd be easier to, to get 50 votes for that than particularly for senators from some fossil fuel states being willing to go this far in terms of supporting a green, green energy agenda. But it's certainly the politics are going to be very important. But it's not just the politics that's important, it's the financing. I mean, one of the questions I get all the time is, how can we possibly afford all of this with, with the debt to GDP ratio running at over 100%, really the nation as indebted from a federal government perspective since World War II? Um, can we afford all of this? I think it's going to be financed you know, partially at best. It's going to be kind of a classic spend now, worry about paying for it later. And in terms of the infrastructure package in particular, you know, that's about a trillion dollars, 550 billion of new spending and about 450 billion previously earmarked. But the sources of financing are a bit dubious. It's things like greater IRS enforcement, potential tax enforcement for cryptos, um, auction proceeds from 5G, any unused COVID funds or unused unemployment benefits. So it's a little bit um, less concrete in terms of how much that's actually going to be. Um, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that this could increase the deficit by about $256 billion over about a decade. Um, on the other hand, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has that number pegged even higher at about $400 billion added to the deficits over the next decade. So it, it's going to be pretty meaningful in that regard. And, and on the reconciliation side, look, a lot of it seems a little bit more concrete because it's from proposed tax reform. But you know, at the same time, how much is that actually going to cover of this massive bill? It's, it's hard to tell. But some of the proposals in there are things like increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Now, that's still below the 35% it was before the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, but a, a meaningful increase there. Um, capital gains taxed at ordinary income rates for households earning over a million, that would effectively double that rate. Um, top marginal individual income tax rate moving from 37% to 39.6% for households earning over $400,000. And then there's a couple of other, you know, multinational, um, estate, corporate taxes in there. I suspect that some of those could be abandoned in the final bill, but some, some pretty meaningful different measures from a tax perspective. However, again, the, the cost here... It's probably going to come in above three and a half trillion dollars. Um, again, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget estimates that this could be about five point five trillion dollars, not three and a half trillion. So ultimately, any way you slice it, we're going to see higher deficits over the next eight to ten years, and and certainly that's going to lead to higher debt. I think that's that's very likely if these bills get passed. But the question really is how much. You know, you've you've got two bills. You you got the infrastructure bill, which is designed to be a bipartisan bill. You've got the reconciliation bill, which is more ambitious in terms of its overall spending and potentially deficit impact. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to get it through Congress. So that being the case, how much you know, how much do you think they're going to have to pare down their ambitions in the reconciliation bill? At least the Democrats will. How what do you think is going to be in the final bill? 
Well, I'll tell you what I don't think is going to be in the final bill. I think that things like immigration reform are going to get tossed out pretty early. To your point, some of the more ambitious climate measures, particularly anything related to carbon taxes, probably not going to make it into the final bill. And even when we think about a lot of the tax reform, the actual rates there are probably going to come down. Maybe we'll see about 25% um, on that top corporate tax rate. Uh, we, we probably won't see the capital gains rate raised as much as being proposed. We will probably see those higher individual income taxes. Again, some of the other stuff probably going to be abandoned. But the price tag is going to come down and, and things are going to get watered down a bit. And again, as you mentioned, things like the child tax credit, pretty popular, but a lot of the other initiatives are going to have to be scaled back pretty meaningfully. All right. Another thorny issue. It's a, This is going to be a very volatile period in Washington over the next few months. Uh, the debt ceiling. I mean, the debt ceiling has now been reimposed as of July 31st. Uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is using special measures to try to pay the bills because she can't borrow any more money. Uh, at some stage... We know that there's going to we're going to run into a limit of what she can do. So I guess my question is, you know, when are we going to run into that limit, and will they, you know, they're, they're playing a game of chicken right now. Will they ultimately, will both sides blink to allow an increase in the debt ceiling, or could we actually end up defaulting on our debt? I think we should expect some real political brinkmanship here. On the one hand, the Republicans have said, we don't want to support increased spending or, or taxation by the Democrats. On the other hand, you know, suspending the debt limit is allowing for existing obligations. It's not new in, in future spending. So the Democrats would say, well, hey, we, we this is debt accrued based on actions from prior administrations. So they're, they're kind of locking horns in that respect. But look, without Republican support, the Democrats may have to raise the debt limit through its reconciliation bill. They have not thus far included it in there or mentioned that they will. And look, if we defaulted, that's some pretty serious consequences we could be in for. We have not defaulted in U.S. history. That would be unprecedented. We'd likely see a downgrade to our credit rating. Yields would probably spike. That means higher borrowing costs, a lot of financial market turmoil. We certainly saw that when the U.S. debt was downgraded in 2011. And this would be pretty catastrophic for both political parties. There's really no winner here. So I think we're either going to see um, the debt ceiling raised or suspended at the very last minute. And this is not a new thing. Since 1960, Congress has raised or suspended the debt limit 78 times. This is something that uh, they've done before and they should continue to do for the health of the economy um, and for the credibility of, of the U.S. economy. Um, so we'll probably see this right at the last hour um, being either, again, raised or, or suspended, as Congress has done many times in the past to, to avoid default. Well, yes. I mean, is it, to be honest, I, I personally think that the whole issue of a debt ceiling is just silly because it's, it's you have to raise it or it's financial Armageddon. So you have to raise it, but both sides use it as a political football. Uh, but it does, of course, increase the pressure on uh, Democratic moderates because if they don't vote for the reconciliation bill and if this is contained in the reconciliation bill and that's the only way of getting the debt ceiling raised in the end, then there's more than just a... Uh, you know, green energy agenda or the size of tax cuts on the line. There's a lot on the line if they don't pass that bill. So I think, you know, it certainly is. It will make for, for, for a tense time uh, later on this year. Um, but getting beyond this year, I mean, we've seen these enormous deficits. And of course, because of the pandemic, we've seen these huge deficits. We've seen deficits over 10% of GDP last fiscal year, going to be something pretty similar this fiscal year. And then even with 
these proposals, you're going to see some significant drop in the deficit. Now, as an economist, I know that, you know, what, what's the deficit? It's the difference between the, the money the government puts into the economy in the form of spending, you know, taking out what it, it, it uh, takes out of the economy from taxes. So you could end up in a bit of a fiscal cliff with the government suddenly putting less money into the economy or taking more money out of the economy. Um, how do you feel about this? I mean, do you think this could be a drag on the economy in 2022 and beyond? So we've really seen that deficit spike in 2020 and, and likely to see that same thing in 2021 so far. So the budget deficit as a share of GDP was about 4.6% back in 2019. And even at the time, we were thinking that's getting elevated. It's not heading in the right direction. But then it ballooned to 14.9% in 2020. And we're on track for 13.4% for fiscal year 2021. So that's a pretty pronounced spike. Now, it did surge due to a lot of one-time pandemic-related expenses, you know, putting money towards households and businesses to help them weather this awful pandemic. And ultimately, the idea was that it would be injected into the economy as quickly as possible to deliver support to those who needed it. On the other hand, when we think about things like the infrastructure package or the reconciliation package, the spending is meant to come across over you know, the course of time, over this, call it the next eight to 10 years. So it's not going to have that same concentrated effect that the pandemic spending did. But I'd also say, you know, maybe technically that creates a fiscal cliff. But at the same time, right now, growth rates are the fastest they've been in decades. So we don't need and probably can't in the long run sustain growth at this pace. You know, fundamentally, we are a 2% economy, not a 6% economy. So the fiscal stimulus did its job and growth can still slow and allow us to have a pretty solid economy. No, that's a very good point. We are a 2% economy. But I guess one of the one of the things I do worry about, and I know our clients worry about is you know, could we even maintain 2% when you go into 2023 and beyond? Because one of the issues out there is, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but perhaps not quite as much of a fiscal cliff in 2022. But we have the 2022 midterm elections. And the governing party, the party that controls the White House, usually loses seats. Do you think that the, that the result of the 2022 elections could cause a pullback further on fiscal stimulus? Sure. I mean, that's why we're seeing such a big push right now, because the future is so uncertain. I mean, as we head into 2022, first off, most Congress members are going to want to shift their focus to campaigning. And as you say, the Democratic majority in Congress is really in jeopardy in 2022. So they're trying to push through as much of their agenda as possible now, because history is not on the Democrats' side, not the Democrats specifically, but the the, the majority party. Um, in the last 19 midterm elections. The president's party has lost House seats in 17 of them and Senate seats in 13 of them. And those average losses are, are pretty high. So the average loss in the House was about 27 seats. And in the Senate was about three to four seats. Remember, we're at a 50-50 Senate and the Democrats only have a five-seat majority. So odds not necessarily in their favor. So how are the races shaping up there? Look, it's very early to tell, but some early indications are for one, the Senate has about 34 seats up in 2022. Uh, 20 of those are Republican, 14 are Democrat, and about 10 of them are, are competitive races. There's a couple of true toss-ups emerging, um, a couple of areas where the Republicans put, could potentially flip, you know, areas like Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire. So there's, there's some certain targets there. 
the House is probably actually going to be even more challenging because all 435 seats are up for election. Again, the Democrats only have a House majority of five seats. And we are embarking on the reapportionment and redistricting process, given the census results. So the reapportionment has already happened in terms of which states will lose or gain seats. So the places that have lost seats, areas like California, Michigan, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, West Virginia, um, several Democratic states in there. Um, on the gaining seat side, we have Oregon, Montana. Colorado, two for Texas, Florida, North Carolina. So that is a challenge in and of itself. But it's not just the reapportionment, it is the redistricting. Even if you didn't gain or lose seats, what your outcome could be is still different based on the recently published census data. And this affects Congress, um, state legislatures, you know, even local levels. Um, and the way they do this process varies state by state. So sometimes it's a third party commission. Sometimes it's the, the state legislature itself, of which in many of these states we do see uh, Republican dominated areas. So it does put the Democrats at a bit of a disadvantage. I mean, Republicans could gain those five seats just through redistricting alone. So suffice it to say it's going to be really close we are likely to potentially end up with a divided government. And divided government would mean less fiscal stimulus, more political gridlock, and more politics over policy. But obviously, and I think that's important for 2022. And I think it is true, certainly based on recent history, that when you have divided government, you actually get tighter fiscal policy. Because it seems that you know, it used to be the Republicans were regarded as being fiscally conservative and the Democrats were regarded as being more fiscally activist in terms of trying to achieve certain goals. Uh, but now they, there is a certain element of populism on both sides. Uh, and there's actually less concern um, on deficits on both sides. But when you've got divided government, they tend to, uh, uh, you know, try to defeat the other side's agenda. But over time, we're probably going to get one party government again. We'll have bouts of this from time to time. Do you think that both parties have essentially embraced what's called modern monetary theory, where you basically run the deficit as, as high as you can until uh, you, you run into some inflation problem, but, but essentially would be a, an excuse for a very expansionary fiscal policy? Do you think both parties have, have essentially adopted that? And what do you think the consequences of that are? We've seen deficits and debt rise among both Republicans and Democrats. Either time when either party is in power, we continue to see that. So it's definitely a different trend than it once was. And again, this is a big point of argument when it comes to the debt ceiling. The Republicans say, we don't want to finance uh, future Democratic spending. The Democrats say, well, we don't want to support the spending that has come through from Republicans in the past. So there is very much this deadlock in, in terms of who is responsible and what people are doing going forward. But I think the bottom line is because of this trend we've seen from both parties, we're not likely to usher in a new era of fiscal responsibility if one of those parties is dominating uh, politics. Ultimately, the only thing it seems like that can result in more fiscal restraint is divided government. And again, not because that's a choice, because it produces gridlock. Interesting. Uh, no, but still, you know, it seems like debt and deficit sort of ratchet up and they don't really come down a lot under divided government. They just stop going up for a little while and then they start going up again. Um, and the question, of course, is in the long run, 
how is this resolved? I mean, I mean, your trees don't grow to the sky. Eventually, the debt has to be paid for. Do you think that we can, you know, to take an optimistic perspective on it, do you think that we can grow our way out of this debt and deficit problem? Or do you think that it's going to ultimately result in higher taxes and that's going to impose a drag on the economy? We have grown our way out of debt and deficits before, but that was after the World War II period when we had much better demographics. We're not in that situation this time around. And it's not totally clear in terms of the economic benefits of either of the infrastructure or reconciliation packages, what degree economic benefits, you know, to what degree they will produce economic benefits. There should be some sort of multiplier effect from the infrastructure package on growth. It should result in some degree of job creation. But again, not quite sure. It's really going to depend on what uh, the specific things that are that come through. And in terms of the, the reconciliation package, in the long run, things like better support for families, better education, that should help. Um but it's not going to be this pop in growth. Those are benefits that are realized over decades and generations. Should be helpful, but it's not going to translate to the numbers right away. And I think that, unfortunately, we are going to have to see um, a change in, in the way we're, we're managing our federal finances. Because debt is only sustainable in the short run because rates are so low. At some point, rates are going to rise and interest costs are going to be a drag on growth, especially because a lot of our debt is owned by foreign entities. We're going to be paying those interest payments abroad. Um, so we're going to have to see some tax increases. And I'm not talking about the tax increases we've already talked about. Those are only to finance some of the spending packages that are being proposed, not to cut into the debts and deficits that we already have. So it's going to be over and above that. And in addition, we're probably going to need to to make some meaningful spending cuts over time. This is going to be, you know, a really a multi-decade effort. It's not something that we can fix in a short uh, time frame. Um, and if we don't start on that process of, of right-sizing our federal finances, then the risk of higher inflation in the long run does become a bigger threat. So given all of that, given the short-term stimulus, but also the short-term complications, the long-term implications of all this debt, uh, let's you know let's bring it back to investors. What does all this mean for investors? So a couple of different things. If we do have you know more and more debt, higher deficits, it could over time mean slower growth, higher inflation, and really constrained returns going forward. So I do think as clients and investors, we do need to recalibrate our expectations a little bit in terms of where uh, returns might be a few years down the line, especially because our starting point is a little bit challenging right now with valuations pretty high on both equity and fixed income, and the fact that monetary policy normalization is on the way. So part of it is recalibrating and, and right-sizing our expectations from our portfolios. But the other part of it is trying to find solutions and trying to be a little bit more creative in our portfolios. If we're headed into a slow growth, slow earnings world, we need to find sources of growth. Often there are sources within the international investments perspective, you know, particularly in higher growth areas like China, um, thinking about new industries and, and new philosophies of investing, things like sustainable investing in ESG, and also things like alternative investments for those for whom it's appropriate for um, to help as a diversifier or to enhance returns. So there are a lot of solutions out there. It's just about heading out in, into some new territory for some people. Um, and then when we think about inflation, um, 
you know, cyclicality tends to do pretty well during inflationary environments, particularly in the one we're in right now where growth is so high. So where we find more cyclical exposure in areas like the U.S. and abroad from an equity perspective, that should help. We've also seen that real assets are a pretty good hedge for inflation, whether it's real estate or infrastructure. Um, so so hedging will, will be an important piece of that, too. Um, I would say that areas like TIPS, perhaps less attractive right now from an inflation protection standpoint, because some of that inflation protection is offset by the fact that TIPS have duration. They are bonds, and they are bonds with real yields that are negative right now. Um, and then maybe finally just thinking about implications of taxes. I know we get a lot of questions on that. Certainly higher corporate taxes would be a headwind for growth in 2022. I think the silver lining is that we've seen profits so robust in 2021, margins so robust in 2021, that that does give us a little bit of cushion in 2022 um, for tax reform um, to, to eat into that a bit in which we can still have growth just at lower levels. Um, on the cap gain side, we might see a bit more volatility before a cap gains hike, but ultimately investors are going to come back to the investments that are, are working for them and, and driving towards their objectives. So some of that volatility could die down. And then when we think about um, higher individual tax rates, uh, investors have to, again, be a little bit creative about how they're allocating. Um, munis tends to be one area where investors find some, some tax advantages. So it is a challenging situation from an investment standpoint, for sure. But I think that investors who are, again, willing to be a bit flexible, a bit creative, can find uh, some, some appropriate solutions to help manage some of these risks. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mira. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode where I'll be joined by global market strategist Gabriela Santos to discuss China's long-term growth story. There have been many headlines about China over the past few months, and we'll examine how they could impact China's long-term outlook and which opportunities investors should focus on. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.